It's just like farming. I mean, um, people will say to me often, like, why are farmers so grouchy and pessimistic all the time? And that's <laughs> not it. They're not pessimistic. They're simply preventing insanity by talking through scenarios of possible downside. <laughs> and so, <laughs> I, I love that. If you can I get through that, that conversation and still convince yourself that it's going to work in the end and you plant the crop against all odds, well, good for you. You're, you're, not, you're not insane. Growing the Future podcast is brought to you by Eberhardt Ag Solutions. Join us as we talk to top entrepreneurs in the agricultural space about their methods of obtaining success in their endeavors. And now, your host, Dan Eberhardt. I am really excited to be here today with uh, the great guy, Ben Voss, that I originally met through the Field of Stars event. He was uh, chairman at the time and um, led the event. It was brand new at the time. And I uh, was always impressed with his leadership and um, excited to talk to Ben Boss on the Growing the Future podcast today. How are you doing there today, Ben? I'm great, Dan. Thanks. Appreciate you inviting me on. Oh, it's going to be great. We're going to cover some ground. So today, the way that I see this going, Ben, is we're going to talk about your professional background, but you're also a farmer, right? Yes. Farmer at heart. Yeah. So we want to hear about how you're farming because you got some unique things going on there. But we're going to talk about your career and where you've gone, some of the uh, the ground you traverse, the challenges and the opportunities and where you're going because you're back in the news again with a brand new invention, right? Yeah. Yeah. Entrepreneur yeah, at heart. Good. It's like a, yeah. it's like a recurring rash. You just never quite yeah. get rid of it, eh? Yeah, exactly. It's in the DNA. So, yeah. um, tell us a little bit about yourself, your professional career, and where you've been and where you're heading. Great. Yeah, I uh, I grew up in Northwest Saskatchewan near a town called Spiritwood, and uh, that's in the very northern part of the Grain Belt. So we have some pretty rough terrain, a little more uh, rainfall than most parts of the prairies. And uh, I loved farming my whole youth. I think uh, I started welding probably would be a, considered child abuse nowadays. But I, I was <laughs> welding when I was six years old and running around in the machine shop following my dad, learning all the skill sets. I think I shifted my first standard transmission when I was maybe seven. Like, you know... Stuff that we don't really do nowadays. But yeah, you can't get oh, away with that anymore. It would be know. a safety HR disaster. Yeah, but fun stuff anyway. And I I was doing all the combining when I was 13. Like we, I was very involved, loved it. Uh, went to university, came to the, came, moved to Saskatoon, uh, attended uh, the U of S and I got a degree in agriculture engineering, which they don't offer anymore. But at the time, they had evolved it a little bit. Agriculture and bioresource engineering is actually what it's uh, referred to as. Uh, I got to work at some cool companies along the way. Um, traveled around the world. Lived in Germany for a while. Uh, worked on a dairy farm there. Uh, went on a custom combining crew down in Texas, Kansas, all through that country. Got my class one truck driving license. So I'm, uh, I don't know, I've always kept myself pretty grounded. 
keep like getting my hands dirty. And um, I got married. I have three kids. So I guess that's my my first name in my title is a father. And uh, I decided uh, with my wife that we wanted to farm. So about 10 years ago, we bought some of the land from my parents. I was still working full time, but we didn't want to lose the chance. So we uh, bought my great grandfather's original homestead and we built a house out there and started establishing ourselves and wanted our kids to grow up in that environment the same way I got to grow up. So I wanted them to see how a garden is planted and how equipment is repaired. And, um, you know, I, I didn't want that knowledge lost. So that was my primary motivation for farming. But I also had to make it work financially. It's not something you can just do as a, I mean, there are lots of people that have hobby farms, don't get me wrong, but it was a pretty serious investment. You can't just buy a farm and then let it go. You got to look after it. And we wanted it to be financially viable. So I took it as a bit of a challenge in that, how do I make a smaller farm profitable in today's world? And do it in a way that I can still manage a career at the same time. One of the things that you said to me that, that stuck with me when you talked about your farm was, I mean, you have to, th- you have to think strategically, right? Because you're not, my impression of your farm, and you can tell us more, but my impression of your farm is it's not a huge scaled operation with, you know, different divisions and thousands no. and thousands of acres. You were saying you need to justify that 18 hours a day that you're working to your family that this is worthwhile on a bunch of yeah. levels. So how are, how are you achieving that? Oh, so we uh, we crop about a thousand acres, so that's uh, pretty small in today's world of farming. Uh, my parents are pretty close to retirement, but my dad can help me out a little bit, run the harrows or haul grain or a few things. Maybe hop on the combine when I need them. But I have I have no hired labor, so pretty much have to do every task myself. Um, so there's a bit of scale involved. You need to big enough equipment to get it done fast and equipment that I can justify buying to spread over a thousand acres. And then I had to think, you know, the challenge is not just yield, but uh, margin and coming up with enough profit at the end of this that I can say I've made a pretty good income off that thousand acres and uh, not just spend it all on inputs or spend it all on costs or capital costs. So it helps that I'm a bit of a mechanic. I can keep my stuff fixed (laughs) and uh, it helps that I can build some of my own equipment too, if I need to. So there's been a little bit of that. So I like to diversify a bit. That's helped me. Um, experimented with some new crops this is my fourth year growing fabla beans and they're one of my favorite crops to grow um my brother's growing some of those yeah yeah Yeah. agronomics on those is is very good it's good to have in their rotation hey yeah the amount of nitrogen they put down is unbelievable yeah and there seems to be a lot of other something else going on in the soil i'm sure somebody with a phd in micro biology could tell us more but it's it definitely seems to be symbiotic it has a very positive effect on the future crops well i'm fascinated that there was at one time a a marriage between agriculture and engineering at the u of s because when i went to school it was kind of the opposite we were mortal enemies (laughs) engineering and agriculture yeah it's like a good fit they still are i think they still have their feuds but 
some of those, again, <laughs> the things that they got away with 25 years ago aren't exactly yes. legal it was a anymore. Time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, it was a different time altogether. But uh, uh, yeah. how are you applying your engineering or your soil science education to the farm now? Like what, what's coming into play here? Yeah, I mean, I've uh, had, I've been very blessed with a very diverse career and I got to do some very cool stuff. So I, I would say one of my mentors told me one time when I was 30, he says, you're a 55 year old packed into a 30 year old's body. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I didn't quite understand what he meant, but it was more just that I guess I didn't sleep very much. I just was so enthusiastic. I packed a lot of stuff in, saw a lot of things, did a lot of things, wasn't afraid to say no, always tried new things. And uh, no, I'm 45 now, so I've got still a pretty good runway in my career, but uh, all those experiences seem to still circle back to what I've started as, which is agriculture and and uh, being an engineer. And uh, a good chunk of you just constantly looks at situations and say, how can I do it better? Or can I solve that problem? Or what can we do to fix that? Um, and, you know, you learn with some of the years of wisdom that some of the ideas just need to be put on the shelf and some are worth pursuing. So now with our farm, I think, uh, and with my background, I think I'm doing a lot of interesting things with these different cropping methods like intercropping, for example, everybody's talking about this. Well, it's easier said than done to plant a small seeded crop and a big seeded crop at the same time. And then there are some very expensive equipment out there that you can buy, but to make it work on a thousand acre farm, you you got a smaller budget. (laughs) But that I've discovered the last three years of doing it, that there are some huge advantages to it. Even just, uh, you know, intercropping sweet clover, which is an old crop, but we know it puts down nitrogen and it has other benefits. And with with modern seeding methods with air seeders and minimum tillage, that you gotta you gotta experiment with that. And it's not exactly a popular technique because you can't use all the herbicides with that because you'll kill the clover. And you can't you're not necessarily gonna buy a lot of fertilizer because the clover is gonna offset that. But I've got a canola crop coming that's interseeded with sweet clover and I've got very low diseases and some pretty strong stand going on there. So I, that's the kind of stuff I like doing now is I, I mean, it's commercial scale. You're doing it to make some money, but it's, there's definitely R and D going on there at the same yeah. time. That's my impression is that a lot of the folks in conventional agriculture are looking over the fence and they want some of that goodness. You know, they, I mean, there's obviously upsides to doing it, but the pain of actually going in that direction is is visceral. And I've I've been out to the field day last year when my brother grew uh, peola and flaxola. Yeah. And it was brutal, you know. Yeah. And here's a guy, he loves trials. He's a pretty reasonable farmer. He, you know, he's grown a lot of different crops, like a very diverse rotation, like nine yeah. different crops type thing. But it's it's quite a it's quite a summit to scale. So do you think, you know, with your, with your background and we'll get to it, obviously working alone on the farm is quite a juxtaposition to a large scaled, you know, company with hundreds of employees. Are we going to be able to scale some of these practices where you're trying to make more money per acre intercropping? I don't know if we want to say regenerative practices, but 
Or is that yeah, going to be something he's like one man alone tinkering, you know, one man alone against uh, <laughs> the variety of nature here to try and rein it in and make, yeah. make something of it? Well, it's a bit back to the future. I mean, the, when there were a lot more smaller farms, you had a lot more inventors. They had more time. You know, today's professional farmers are, you know, they're using technology a lot more. They don't have as many tools in their hand. So there's there's obviously still a lot of inventor farmers, but it's not, it's just, it's just sheer numbers. There's just not as many. So to scale it today, most farmers want a turnkey package with a warranty plan and they want an agronomist to sign off on it. There's a reason why monocropping is very popular. It's easy to grow <laughs> that one crop and take it to the mill or the elevator or the canola crusher and they buy it and you get paid and that's easy. If you grow peas and canola together or soybeans and canola or whatever, and then you have to clean it, on-farm cleaning is tough. And then you got to deal with possible you know, train wrecks and then not get paid. That's the part that people don't like. And crop insurance doesn't like it too much. You know, there's other factors. So I, I think for these, these practices to take hold, just anecdotally, any of my neighbors that are asking me questions about these strategies, they're looking because they're looking at their existing crops and going, the yields aren't good enough. And so if they've invested 150 to $200 an acre into a canola crop and they're only getting 35 bushels the acre, it's not working. So they gotta they gotta change something. Either the short rotations are hurting them, or the higher costs are hurting them. At any rate, they're looking at it and it's not penciling out for them anymore. So they want to try something else. You know, I, I'm worried about agriculture from um, just from the vantage point of that I, you and I grew up when it was more populated and the rural areas had more people, and it was we sort of reckon back to that and say that. That was the good. That was the good example that we want to, you know, retain that. But our communities are smaller, and there's not very many young people there anymore. It's just not going to be like that. So the reality is, we need to find ways to create an agriculture that society likes. You know, they still want that McDonald farm, but we have to do it in a professional industrial scale. So you know, marrying together practices that are transparent that consumers will accept, but doing that at a scale because we don't have the people or the communities anymore. So there's a bit of a tug of war going on there. But I do think the challenge can be met because farmers are entrepreneurs and the and money talks. <laughs> I'm totally with you, and I, I I that really resonates for me. I think that. I don't know exactly where we lost the moral high ground, but farmers, I mean, farmers used to be a yeah. highly respected occupation. Yeah. And I, I don't think I have to point out, it's not rocket surgery. I think most people are feeling it. It's not yeah. quite as uh, held in, in high esteem like it used to be. In fact, the average person that's benefiting from the infrastructure that agriculture affords us is, is sort of railing against it. I had mentioned yeah. the story about talking to somebody, you know, uh, urban female from the States in a, some seminar that I was in and she, you know, I explained what we do and she's like, Oh, I hope you're not flogging that glyphosate that's killing everybody. I mean, she can't even pronounce it. She doesn't likely know all what's what going is. on or how, how it's advanced a lot of, you know, our ability to have cheap food, cheap energy is sort of the infrastructure society is built on, but, but they don't get it. So my big question for everybody is like, how the heck are we going to take this moral high ground back? How are we going to be super respected? We can't go back to certain things that were, but 
I think there's a way to evolve through it. And some of what you're doing might be part of that because you, you must be generating X amount of more revenue. Like you're not getting twice as much, you know, not getting two crops every season, but you're getting incrementally what 30, 50% more yield in terms of revenue or how yeah, are you I, doing that math? I try to look at it as margin as opposed to gross, you know, so yeah. if I, if I can get a high yield, that's great. But, um, the crops that you grow. So if you, if you grow a specialty crop like flax, we know that's worth a lot. It's harder to grow. It has more of an agronomic challenge and it requires a certain rotation plan, but the profits are spectacular. And there's opportunities to grow crops in a way that there are premiums. So if you want to grow crops for a premium by choosing certain methods like organic, or chemical free or conventional even there's conventional choices like i mean i'm growing some non-gmo canola this year because there are emerging markets for premiums for non-gmo canola not because i don't like i've grown plenty of gm canola (laughs) money talks so what does that look like you're using you're using edge or yeah, you? yeah, use an edge and, and <laughs> back clover. to the future, baby. Nice. <laughs> also, yeah. and, and I, you know, and I'm in a very different uh, climate zone, so our region is still using a fair bit of tillage. It's not yeah. a, it's not a hard thing to do when you get twelve to fifteen inches of rain every June. <laughs> so we we generally have more crop failures because of flooding than we do because of of drought. Everybody's got their own set of problems, don't they? I, I, I won't go into the whole uh, Smith Creek watershed drainage talk because that's a whole other controversy. Yeah, uh, well, you know, and we, we've done some cool stuff on the farm over the years too that probably isn't that popular nowadays. Like we've done some good drainage programs and farmed some nice low land that's very productive, but it's not, uh, it's not as likely to be popular today to drain wetlands and farm them. Oh, but I mean, I grew up in a development mindset. We had over three quarters of the land I farm now was bush. We broke it, you know, cleared it, broke it, picked the stones, made it into farmland. So that's, I don't know anybody doing that now. No, I, I, you I see it incrementally, but not yeah. on the same scale. Like you see not, the edges yeah. are getting cleaned up and some bush yeah. being pushed a little bit every year, at least from what I see in my travels. Yep. Here and there. Where are you guys located exactly again? Just give us a visual. Uh, so Northwest Saskatchewan, um, the for, the provincial forest boundary is two miles from my farm. Whoa. Okay, yeah, you're right up there. So, so there's logging operations near my farm. Okay, so how far are you from Saskatoon then? I'm trying to visualize. An hour, hour and 45 minutes north. That's some thinking time. Yeah, it's a good, it's a very pleasant drive though. It is. Yeah. It really is. Right? Like, isn't that, is, that's a pretty yeah. important time to get in life that we're not often afforded otherwise. My poor friends, I'll tell you, they don't see me as often as they once did. But I, I'm, I, def- I definitely won't sacrifice family time. There's no way that that gets uh, set aside. So it's pretty it's pretty important to be with the kids and my wife every day. Are the kids out and uh, stick shifting and trying to cultivate <laughs> straight and everything like we're talking about? Yeah, they got a they've got a few toys. Um, I think I've been reflecting on that a lot because it's not it's just not the same world. 
you just can't just throw them in a tractor and let them go. It's not the same world. And uh, and I think there's so much more occupying their face time nowadays. Like there was no, I had one TV channel growing up. It was CBC. Yeah. yeah. No internet. Right? You're over there with the rabbit ears. Just... I, had, I had an Atari. That was my, that yeah. was my video game. You know, that, that was, uh, that meant you were outside and, and, you know, that was normal. Today, there's tons of things to entertain kids, and they're growing up in a far more luxurious setting than I got to grow up in. But that's that's every kid now, pretty much. I mean, the the opportunity for them to set themselves for the next forty years is uh, it means they have to learn different skills than I learned. I wish that they could just you know clone all that knowledge that I got when I grew up with pounding nails and running welding rods, but that's that's only one of the skills they're going to need. If they don't have all these technology-oriented skills, they won't survive in the new world either. So it's it's the finding the balance. I think you know. So when we go to the farm, uh, they're not on technology as much. It's more uh, like they're they're finding pieces of wood and they're building something or they're uh, riding bikes or they're riding with me in the equipment or whatever. But, uh, um, you know, planting a garden is still important and making pickles and, you know, butchering. I have several friends who are pretty high, uh, highly respected CEOs that always want to know when we're butchering they will be out there in a minute to experience that (laughs) you know it's unfortunately not exactly for you know it's a bit brutal you know but it's part of our society and uh we have a huge circle of friends that want to eat beef raised on our farm because they know where it came from and they just want to trace it back but my dad still has cattle and I still get to benefit from that a little bit. <laughs> nice. I think that's great if people had that opportunity to experience that because we are just so far removed from that. It's not even funny. Like nobody can relate. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, it's going to be interesting. I think, I think the pandemic has raised people's awareness a little bit more about food, food culture. They've had to cook more. They've had to educate themselves and what is all this stuff and where did it come from and what makes it special um you know living in europe they have a much higher appreciation for local food than we do here and they have a great rich history to their food and want to tell the story i think that's starting to make some inroads in north america as well but broad acre agriculture and it's still highly dependent on scale food processing and export. So it's hard to connect the story to the consumer all the time. Yeah. I think, I think there's some interesting changes going on. I know last week at my brother's farm day, they had a dual pronged opportunity where they had a protein plant that was paying a premium for stuff that wasn't sprayed. And they had drone technology that was creating a prescription map for green on green spraying of weeds that reduced your chemical usage by like 85%. So I'd love to see the spreadsheet if you put those two opportunities together that you'd call like the most sustainable play on planet Earth. Those are big opportunities to do things radically like that's no brainer math. So I think it's technology like that. Markets like that are going to change everything. Yeah, if the signals coming from the green companies is pretty remarkable. I, I don't know. I've never seen it before, to be honest, where the price spread between non-desiccated and desiccated crops is just, and, and it's not just oats. I mean, every single crop now, I've had three grain companies tell me there's between 50 cents and a buck a bushel premium if you don't desiccate. Wheat, canola, pulses. So it's, 
they're just basically saying, if you can grow it without doing that, we'll pay you more because there's an unmarket that's willing to pay for that knowledge. Are you spending more time on average than the conventional producer looking at novel markets like that? Would you say, is that part of your strategy making money in what you're doing? I don't know. I think every producer I talk to spends a lot of time on it now. Everybody's trying to find a way to get a little more. I guess my appetite for risk is maybe a little higher than others because I haven't entirely depended on the farm for all my income. So I can I can say that working off the farm is primarily how I pay the bills. And then if I take a little risk on the farm and it doesn't pay off, I'm not devastated. Right. What's the mix now between the farm and your other professional endeavors you're doing some consulting or what what what's the professional mix off the farm yeah i mean working full-time in a company i've done that a few times in the last 20 years and then i've had uh several times when i was an entrepreneur and doing more consulting and development and starting up other companies it comes and goes like i uh i would say right now i'm half and half i'm a little more a little heavier on farming a little less on on uh, business. And then um, when some of these ventures maybe take off a little more, I'll be pulled back away, but I'm set up to do that. So I'm, I'm grateful. But people used to laugh at me because I used to park my semi in the parking lot full of green and then I'd go into a board meeting. Nice. <laughs> nice. So, you know, it's a bit. Well, it was a crazy life. My dad yeah. always worked off the farm when I was growing up. I always worked off the farm. They either have a business on the farm, they're doing trucking, they're working as a trade, they're working in the oil fields, any, any of the above to make money so they can enjoy life a little more. Agriculture is a long game. It's not an annual game. Right. So you have to be prepared to make those long game investments and you have to be prepared for a year or two that may not pay off. <laughs> yeah, or for some, they, it goes in decades, you know, like the dirty yeah. 30s. It's like a whole... <laughs> mm-hmm series of 10 years in a row, but, um, how yeah. does, how does one go? I mean, you got a lot of education there. You've got a lot of experience. I'd love to unpack all your experiences all around the world. We don't have the time on the show, but obviously one of the highlights was recently, you know, you were CEO of a large company and most of us from small town Saskatchewan can't imagine being a public CEO of a large company on that scale. The company was Morris. Yeah, it's um, it's neat. I mean, you can look around the CEOs of most of the companies in Western Canada and it's actually interesting. A lot of them started out in small towns or like, uh, you know, Jim Pattison's from small town Saskatchewan. Right, right. right. Jim Trevelling uh, is from Verdon. <laughs> the dragon's yeah, den guy yeah. right exactly and actually now that uh, you say that i you know that's a great point maybe there's something to that there, there is I, some uh, of the guys i know deals have been from small towns for sure uh, it, it's probably there's some statistical report that tells the general average of origination of small town versus city people and and who has the highest chance of being a ceo but in you know when i was growing up uh, most people left saskatchewan to go to alberta i think that was the natural push was to say graduate from university go to alberta that's where the job opportunities are and i mean there was ads on the tv at that time about how to improve the economy to keep our young people here right Mm -hmm. so there was um, significant motivation to prove the mainstream wrong so right out of university i started a company and uh, i was doing engineering and most of my clients were farm equipment companies developing products for them so there's a dozen or so products on the market today that are still out there that we designed uh, so you started out with a manufacturing design company of your own 
Yeah, we weren't manufacturing, but we were building prototypes and we were designing it for other manufacturers. So, I mean, common names today, like AGI and Dagelman and Schulte, companies like that, they would hire us when they needed more capacity. So I had, it was natural for me. I mean, I loved farm equipment. I loved designing stuff. I liked welding. So let's put it all together. <laughs> and cool. uh, once you've been an entrepreneur for a while, especially when you're younger, there's a lot of momentum. I mean, people want, want to talk to you. There's opportunities that start to emerge. Then I started working for bigger companies and... It just became natural to, uh, to apply what you learned. And the stakes get really big when you're in that seat. I mean, you, there's only a handful of people in the world that uh, end up in executive positions. And it, it's not a, uh, it's not for the faint of heart. When you're the CEO, it's kind of lonely, right? I mean, who do you, it, it's, everything stops at you. The buck stops with you. I mean, you don't, you can have advisors and stuff, but at the end of the day, there's really nobody for you to go to at six o'clock on a Friday night when you've got the weight of the world on your shoulders, right? Yeah, it, it gets to be lonelier and lonelier for sure. I think the successful experiences I've had have been because of having fantastic teams of people and alignment with all the right stakeholders. So when I, when I own the company and I control it, it's a lot different as I can call the shots and it's, it's my baby and I can decide what happens. But when you've got partners and you've got all these other institutions and a whole bunch of voices at the table, it is politics all of a sudden trying to figure out how to manage everybody's needs. And, uh, I think, there are some very good CEOs in the world that have learned how to navigate that. And then there's everybody else who just has to learn. Got chewed up and spit and out. Just, yeah, it happens. Yeah. Uh, so it's ruthless. I, I mean, business at that level is, is a incredibly ruthless game really with no, no yeah, mercy. Like it's, it is so, but <laughs> it's a thing you know, of beauty. You know? why, but, but it's like everything else. I mean, why do people want to be in those jobs or why, what is, what is the, why is that the American dream that you want to be? Well, like, what was remember, it for you? Do you remember? Was it for you? Well, do you remember growing up? Did you remember the, the show, The Facts of Life? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. There's always this recurring theme on there. It was Blair. She's the blonde. She'd always be like, I'm going to be the CEO of General Motors. It was like the biggest <laughs> and most important job at Google or Microsoft today. But right. that was considered what every child should strive to, right? Is to become the leader of the biggest company. And, and that, for whatever reason, that has become a big part of our motivation is, you know, you go through school and there is a genuine pressure for all of us to strive to be successful, right? Do great things. Was I've that your first, was Morris your first kick at the can for being chief executive officer or you had, had you led other no. companies prior to that? No, I've been a CEO ever since I left university, actually. So I was CEO wow. of my first company and then I worked in venture capital for a few years in finance. And then I worked in private equity, which is essentially a fancy word for large private owned companies that own companies. When you're in that world, you have to become a generalist and learn a lot about a lot of different industries and be able to help the other managers figure out how to manage their individual business. So that one was probably one of my more fascinating experiences. Uh, so I worked with the Meadow Lake Tribal Council which is uh, very close to where my farm is. And uh, I spent seven years there helping them with their group of companies, which spanned everything from agriculture to forestry to trucking, aviation, hotels. We had a huge portfolio. 
And uh, I learned a lot. It was a lot of fun and it was a great success. I think there's, you know, you can always say retrospectively what went wrong or how could things have changed. I I think the, the next two years of in North America and particularly in Canada, we're going to see a lot of great companies struggle and we're going to say what happened there and why did they not succeed? And we're going to say, well, it must have been this or must have been that. But sometimes it just doesn't go the right way and things don't work out. It's just like farming. I mean, um, people will say to me often, like, why are farmers so grouchy and pessimistic all the time? And that's (laughs) not it. They're not pessimistic. They're simply preventing insanity by talking through scenarios of possible downside. And so <laughs> I, I love that. You can get that. through that conversation awesome. and still convince yourself that it's going to work in the end and you plant the crop against all odds. Well, good for you. You're, you're not, you're not insane. Like, I mean, we talk a lot about the mental health issues in agriculture now because they're, it's important to bring them out of the shadows, but that is the reality is most farmers wrestle with the, the risk. It's like, I put all this money in the ground only for a hailstorm to come along and wipe it out. Like, how could I have controlled that? And sometimes businesses like that. You, you have best laid plans and you put all these things together and you've got what looks like a great team and good partners and then it's fragile. Sometimes things crumble because somebody put a chisel in the strategic spot and it's fractured the foundation. What fascinates me is, is the nature of risk. I mean, the thing that keeps us up at night isn't necessarily a thing that's going to kill you. It's a thing that you never saw coming, just like COVID. Who was planning for airborne respiratory virus that was going to fundamentally alter our civilization overnight? I wasn't. I mean, we were looking at all kinds of risk in our business. Oh, I had no idea. That was not the thing that was keeping me awake six months ago. Well, it's it's taught us that we need to start thinking about the highly unlikely scenarios continuing to happen. I mean, I don't know if anybody's following this one, but I just read the other day uh, that the flooding in China is absolutely catastrophic right now. And their dam is kind of like the dam at Minidosa here. <laughs> yeah. Manitoba, three, it's like creaking three, and groaning and there's cracks showing. Yeah, the three on a lot bigger scale. Is, is potentially going to overflow. And if that happens, there's, th- there's talk that, you know, a third or a quarter of China's agriculture output could be wiped out. Well, that's, that's huge. <laughs> Swine flu and, too, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, swine flu. Yeah. So these black swan events are are more likely to hit us without um, without a lot of notice. And part of what clouds it is that we're inundated with so much information now that it is hard to sift through what's real and what's speculative. Like I, I get those morning blasts from all the experts, right? And it's incredible how contradictory they all are. One person saying, oh, the crop prices are going to fall because of good crop prospects in North America. And then the next analyst says, <laughs> well, there's a record shortage of wheat worldwide and we're going to have a bull run. Like, how do you sift through it all and get something that makes sense now? I'm fascinated by these two worlds that you have. I mean, on one end, you have this CEO. Like, I don't know if you go in a phone booth and just like switch between, <laughs> you know, throw on the cape, the Superman to go into the boardroom to do battle. Because yeah. you, yeah. you know that's what's often in the boardroom is a, a kind of battle that's pretty pretty epic in nature. Like it's it's something to behold. In my experience is, wow, that's exciting yeah, and thrilling. Yeah. And then you got the solitude of the farm. Yeah, it's neat. It's neat. I don't know <laughs> people that get to do that. I, I have It's a, cool. I have, I've been blessed with the ability to have a city life and a country life and I like it. You know, it's hard to split your time and have two things to look after and all that, but I have found a way to manage. 
So are you going to be, uh, I guess you're going to be your partner in a new venture or, you know, yep. is the CEO in you carrying on then? It just, it just can't <laughs> well, stop. I, I'm liking it. It's, it's good to get my hands dirty again and it's nice to be solving a real problem. And, um, I guess sometimes I look at what people are doing and it's like, you've got a solution in search of a problem. And it was kind of fun to have somebody come along and say, well, I, think I've solved a neat problem and a lot of other farmers are asking me for this. And if we could figure out how to build it, I think they'd want to buy one. And that's, there's something um, very attractive about just that good old fashioned, let's get her done, build this thing and get it out, you know, not overcomplicated and not make it, you know, I like selling a $25,000 farm implement. I saw that. I was like, hundred thousand dollar farm. Well, the equipment's so big. I mean, I was in that game too, and I mean, a company like Morris, especially with air seeders, like the complexity, the scale, like yeah. that quantum unit. I mean, it's a thing of beauty, but like, whoa, yeah, high high price machine. <laughs> and look, uh, the market wants that stuff, and they're going to have an abundance of options to continue to buy it. Farmers love that stuff. We all want to have another tool in our toolkit. And I'm very glad to be launching something from scratch and trying to use all my wisdom for that. And, uh, you know, there's lots of cool stuff that we're going to do, but it, it, so I, I would say we'll see how it goes in the next little while. Um, <laughs> I know how to manage the risk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is a lot more, this is a bite-sized risk here. You know, it's palatable, yeah. but uh, for listeners who might not know, might not have seen the Western Producer article, and that's really what, I mean, I've known you for, I guess, a couple of years now. Yeah. Through the stars event there. But when I saw that article, I was like, yeah, I gotta, I gotta chat with you. Cause you know, it's been a little bit since you've been at Morris and I know you've been back farming. We chatted about some of what you're doing on the fertilizer side and, and now you're coming out with this, but it just seemed like such, such a cool little solution. And, but it, it does, you're fixing a, a bigger problem on the horizon or a shifting of the, of the guard, so to speak, with the way agriculture is going. You were, alluding to that earlier that uh, because yeah. we might not be using glyphosate as much or at all in uh, you know spraying of crops to bring them in for harvest, this is uh, helping with that. So is this, who, who are you going to be selling this to? What, what problems are you going to fix? Like what kind of scale are we talking here? Well, the, the farmers that have expressed the most interest in it. So the product is called the Arrow. And we came up with that name because we took two words and put it together. So we aerate swaths or windrows. Nice. And first guy that bought one is a mixed farmer. Uh, grows, I think, six or 7,000 acres of crops and then <clears throat> has cattle, puts up hay. And uh, last year he had a pretty tough harvest with crop that was at various stages of maturity. And he had tough, rainy, wet fall. And some of it you can straight cut, but some of it he had to swap. And then and we had other neighbors who had a spring harvest and had to deal with that. Had to things like when you have a spring harvest and the deer have been in your crop and you have deer droppings all over the swaths it's impossible to get those out you know so we we lifted every swath and all the droppings fell out and he got a clean sample this that is in itself think of the trouble that that deer poop causes you trying to market that grain <laughs> is that going to be the brochure like just uh-huh. a vivid photo of <laughs> that's probably not the first poop. thing <laughs> yeah it might work but, but we you know we sped up his harvest and he got a better he got a better quality sample and it was dry and that was worth a lot to him Paid for the machine basically just on that one event. So <clears throat> I think um, 
our view is that it's not going to, uh, I don't think every region, every farmer is going to want this. Um, but every year circumstances change a little bit. Every farm experiences a dry year or a wet year and they want to be able to change their practices and still have a good harvest window. Oh, I love it. You know, I think, I think a lot of farmers will be interested in it. How, what, uh, how does it actually do what it does? What's the mechanism? Oh, it's pretty simple. So my partner, Ryan Sommerfeld, he's actually the, the brains behind the original concept. He's a big cattle producer and puts up a lot of hay, and he was really struggling to get his hay dry. So he wanted to lift his swaths after they had rain or heavy dew. But he, he had done what a lot of farmers do. they take like an old baler, and he'll take the belts out of it and just use the pickup and drive through his fields and lift the swaths up and then they kind of fluff them up. But uh, the baler was uh, plugging or he had to drive really slow and it was, wasn't working like he wanted. So he thought, is there a way I could drive really fast and get my swaths to lift better than the way it is now? So he came up with a, a rotor, which is just basically a pipe with baler teeth on it. But there are no bands or any other devices. It's just covered in belting. And when it picks up the crop, it doesn't tangle in the teeth. And it turns faster than a normal pickup. And it lifts it and tosses it backwards. And you can drive eight miles an hour. So Hmm. we had one of these. We built a prototype this winter. And we had it running uh, with one producer. And he he had to combine 1,600 acres of barley this spring. And we were staying ahead of three combines with it. So it was pretty neat because you could see the, the moisture. So the barley was tough. They'd start processing the field at nine in the morning and the combines could start at 11 and uh, the barley was dry. And if they didn't do that, the barley was still tough. So they got three hours a day of combine time and dry sample. And they shook the deer poop out of it. <laughs> <laughs> the fluffer extraordinarily yeah. will be different models yeah. of the fluffer. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Um, how are you going to get it to market? What's your, what's your plan? Um, well, uh, that's kind of neat. Actually, I'm thoroughly enjoying the benefits of years of experience in marketing farm equipment because now you can really look at it and say, okay, well, how is the best way to get it to market? And the, the truth is with social media and internet now, the exposure is so much different than it used to be. Um, yeah, it's great when you have an article in the producer, there's <laughs> do some exposure, but not a bad um, launch. There you go. Yeah, I know. But, you know, in the medium term, we'd like to get some dealers set up. I'm interested in that. like to see uh, see how we can work with them. Um, so we haven't started that process yet because they want to see the finished product and we're still working on that. <laughs> Shouldn't have that done. Yet. A couple more days and I'll have it done. But yeah. What color is it going to be? Mean, I mean, I, you got to pick a color. Is it green or red or yellow? These are big decisions. First one is blue. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, sure. The uh, you know, I think the I think the plan is to do this in a way that's pretty sustainable. We're not going to build a factory. We're not going to start a big bunch of overhead. We're going to get them built, get them sold, do you know, rinse, repeat. So there's a lot of good things about a product like this. We can um, we can build them fairly quickly. Everything's readily available, and I took a lot of knowledge in the years of design experience and we have a much more mature supply chain now than we've ever had for machinery. So if you need components made 
<clears throat> they can be made very, very quickly and the quality is unbelievable. So, you know, the, the old metal bashing welding days is far more sophisticated than it's ever been. You can, it's like Ikea, you know, I, I've designed this in CAD software. I order it from a laser cutting shop. Everything fits together with notches and tabs and it can go together backwards and you weld it and it's done. I love it's, it. It's not as hard, you know, the drill press and the saw are sort of things of the past. Well, will it be smaller farmers that are getting this and they might even just want to put it themselves to the, together themselves in the shop in the winter, or is it going to be larger producers? I don't know. I don't want, like, are we going to, are we going to go back to Swathen? Is that what you're saying here? Well, you know, I guess in your region, your, your more Southern region of the prairies, you know, swathing hasn't been around for a long time other than canola. And even that's starting to disappear. You guys have been straight cutting for a long time. Yeah. Uh, the Northern half of the grain belt is still a very high percentage of swathing though. And, and then of course, all the haying that's done is involves swathing. So we think we have a market in the hay uh, world for sure. And on the cropping side, we think that uh, there is going to be somewhat of a return to swathing, um, but not. I don't think it's going to completely revert. I think lots of producers are still going to be able to straight cut their crops, even if they can't desiccate. But uh, if you have a shorter harvest window, um, you're going to need to do something. And some farmers will return some of their farm back to swathing in order to try to expand that harvest window again. Well, it looks like there's going to be a premium here in the near term for, for not, not spraying with, with glyphosate in some circumstances or other chemicals. So, Yeah. If, I mean, or it's an outright ban, right? You have no choice. You have to so do it only one way. And, and I know lots of producers that straight cut their crops without desiccating, but they have yeah. very clean fields and beautiful soil and all one consistent maturity. <laughs> so in my place, I got three stages of crops and right. one field. And, right. You know, I, I have no choice but to swatch. You can't variable rate that like into a nice <laughs> tabletop. Yeah. Enough big D10 cats on my, to make my field flat. <laughs> yeah. I'd say the, the market is, it's a niche product. I think it's got some broad interest right now. There's lots of, um, lots of excitement about it because of how fast you can go and the productivity side. So I don't know lots of farmers will say, oh, I won't ever go back to swathing. So why would I need this thing? And I'm like, that, that's right. But, you know, I, I'm sure they said that about the first grain baggers. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Look that's how interesting. That is now, yeah. Right? That's true. I mean, yeah, I probably look crazy when they first came out. You're thinking, what the heck is going on? And now it's pretty common. I think like, think of all the niche products in ag right now, like conveyors and grain vacs and all these tools that we buy that are in the twenty to $50,000 range, but are hugely popular now. But when they first came out, there was plenty of, well, that's not going to be mainstream. So why would anybody buy that? Mm. 
I mean, I don't, I don't have a grain bagger on my farm, but every single neighbor has one. <laughs> and 10 years ago, they didn't exist. Well, I love that you're uh, taking a journey where I'm sure you're getting to the point where all your wisdom and experience, you can apply it now with great patience and just joy for the process, eh? And just sort of uh, enjoy the journey of what you're doing. Yeah, and I'm still young and I'm sure there'll be other experiences yet to come for me. I mean, I'm not uh, closing the door on anything. I'm, I'm excited to see what happens in the world in the next few years. I think there's going to be some pretty neat opportunities. I, there always is when there's a major disruptive event. Isn't that true? Uh, the shifting yeah. of wealth here, the transition, you know, the opportunities yeah. is incredible. Well, and I think that uh, I think we're learning a few good lessons in Canada right now about the benefits of scars and learning how, like, I mean, every every really good story every good movie the hero always has to be downtrodden once before the victory emerges right and it wouldn't be very interesting otherwise right Right? we would not tune in for two to three hours at a time for sure yeah so i think in life that's true too you can't just go from victory to victory you have to have you know you have to learn a few hard lessons once in a while so yeah. So going forward, what what is next in store? What are you most excited about, or what are you what are you going to do next? Well, I I really enjoy working with small companies, so I do spend a bit of time helping them with my experience. And right now, the arrow's taking up a bunch of my time, mm-hmm. and I will for a little while yet. Um, mm-hmm. and if it if if demand takes off, well, then I'll be very busy. <laughs> I <don't need> to, <laughs> I but I yeah the. Getting the getting the prototypes out and getting that first unit out is is always a marathon, and I enjoy it. But I I really you know the pandemic has changed everything. I mean I'm working from home is just a normal thing now, and having your kids around you and your family it's that's actually I don't mind that. I've always liked that, and it's going to be hard to not have a future where everybody's together. Yeah, but I understand that. If there's a if there's a vaccine and everything works well, everybody be very hungry to get back to the way it was. We evolved to that for a reason. Yeah, it's going to be hard to go back to that extent, though. I think for for a lot of us, I mean, and I don't know how much harder you could go. Everybody was strutting around like a chicken with your oh, head yeah. cut off. Like whether it was locally for different things that uh, you're involved with with the kids or traveling abroad. I mean, it was wild. Yeah. I know I used to travel so much and there's parts of it that are glamorous, but I would say that it's, I haven't missed it that much. (laughs) No. It'll be hard to imagine how shows like Ag Emotion and Crop Production Show and Brandon Egg Days don't happen in person again because there's so, you know, you want to visit and touch things, but yeah. Um, but they could be vastly different with rules and expectations and social practices changing. Yes, they will be. But uh, so you're going to do, you're going to, you're going to be at some of those trade shows, I'm sure with your. Yeah, we'd Arrow, like to be, we'd like yeah. to be the, um, but at this point, nothing's. <laughs> Maybe it's a good year to launch a product. You know, you get lots of forgiveness <laughs> for not attending shows. <laughs> Well, that's how I'm looking at it too. I mean, we've been trade show warriors since we started Aberhart Ag. I'm excited to see what you're going to do next, man. I think it's pretty amazing the career that you've had and the things you've done. It's probably hard earned to throttle back a bit and enjoy some of the finer things in life, a little bit more time and space and the family and all that. Farming. Yeah. A few, I don't know, a couple of years ago, I was 
was chatting with a guy that I wanted to connect with quite badly. He'd been immensely successful in the banking world and he had retired. And so I reached out to him. I said, so what are you doing? He said, I am having the most fun and the <laughs> most fulfillment I've ever had. He says, I bought a, a engine repair shop, which I knew nothing about and I'm operating and I have three employees and it's fantastic. Yeah. You know, he was yeah. head of yeah. a gigantic bank and had thousands of employees. And yet his most enjoyable career was now a small business owner with a balanced life. So I, that story really stuck with me because I thought, wow, I thought he would have been on board of, you know, some mega corporation and then another board of some foundation and doing all these things. Yeah. Here he had just taken a step back and said, what am I doing all this for? Is it just to keep treadmilling my way to the top of some mountain that I, that everybody seems to be climbing or is this about life and then destination that makes sense? <laughs> I love that story. And yeah, that's Mecca. And I think, I think some people can do that within a, a business context too, but uh, often it's something that becomes all consuming and it's really hard, especially some of the levels you were talking about. I mean, you were telling me about being up till four in the morning, trying to get things done. I mean, that's, yeah, you've been there. It's, yeah. You, you staying up all night, hit deadlines and, and get things done and constant crisis isn't that much fun. It it can be a rush when it's like once every three years or something, but <laughs> constantly isn't. Fun. Yeah. What, what am I, what challenge, what marathon did I sign up for here that I'm supposed to do this punishing endurance test? And, that, <laughs> um, I, and you know, a lot of them are farm kids. So yeah. you uh, grew up. Well, exactly. It's our culture. It, yeah. There's you had to work the next yeah. guy. That was the only way to get ahead. Yeah, Drive absolutely. straighter on the summer fall and, and yes. put in more yeah. hours than a neighbor. And you yeah, might make something of yourself. And yeah. But I don't know. I like to think yeah. that now we're getting a little bit more enlightened and it's not always how, how hard you work. It's how, how smart you can work and the people that you can work with to leverage other people's talents and scale it. And if everybody's working in their passion, I mean, I, I don't want to work harder. I, I don't want to We're gonna get better at what we do. And yeah, I, well, I mean, you can work very, very hard at something and not realize that it unfortunately isn't the right thing. Uh, really interesting business study that I read once, and that was 125 years ago in New York City. What do you think the most profitable business was? Mm, 125 years ago, like 1900. Uh, 1900-ish. I want to say prostitution, but... Uh. <laughs> <laughs> it was ice delivery. What? Yeah, so the company, huge companies were in business of harvesting ice in the winter and storing it in these large ice houses and then delivering ice to everybody all the time, year-round, for their ice box. Nice. And along came the refrigerator. Yeah, I mean, we're going to keep adopting technology constantly and kicking the old stuff to the side. Yeah, who knows? I mean, nobody had any idea what was going to happen here, and, and I think it's hard for people to accept that things can change so much. It's almost out of your control. Like we want to rationalize everything. I think that's where our safety comes from. If we can put it in context, but some things you're going to get hit with and uh, it's totally out of your control and that's just nature. And that's what keeps us yeah. on our yeah, toes. Exactly. Well, uh, I don't know. We're innovators. We'll just keep striving and succeeding. It's in our nature, especially Canadians. Exactly. Well, there's something about being this far North. Very you, entrepreneurial you, people. 
Exactly. There's not, there's only so many people that can live, you know, this far north, right? You got to be pretty tough and pretty innovative. Everybody that came here, yeah. I think so. Well, I appreciate you coming on the show, Ben. It's always interesting. Yeah. It was awesome. So take care, Ben. Good luck with the harvest and with your new manufacturing. And thanks for enlightening us and take care. Thanks for listening to the Growing the Future podcast. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for highlights of the show. Also, full-length videos of the show are available on our website, www.growingthefuturepodcast.ca, and on YouTube. We would very much appreciate if you took the time to visit our sponsor, Aberhart Egg Solutions at aberhartagsolutions.ca where you can find innovative solutions that transform your farm.